Well, hi there, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, I have Marshall Hilton, and he'll be talking about his new film, A Clear Shot. It's all coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host, from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McPeak. Well, hi there. Happy Friday. Hope you're all safe and healthy. As I don't know about you, but where I'm right now in Victoria, uh, in BC, we're, uh, we're able to ease a lot of the restrictions. Not that life has gone back to normal um but it it definitely feels less stressful and i think uh mental health is getting better because we're not um cooped up all the time uh i actually get to travel a bit and go to a lake uh this weekend so that will be fun uh, speaking of fun, my guest today is Marshall Hilton, and he might not be a household name, but he has been in over 60 films uh, since the early 90s. Uh, he's here to talk about A Clear Shot, uh, in which he stars opposite the great Mario Van Peebles. Uh, and in like a lot of the, the roles that he does, he plays a cop. Um, he's played a lot of cops and sheriffs or uh, detectives. What's interesting about A Clear Shot, though, is that he plays a real-life character. Uh, a Clear Shot is based on a true story and one that I'd never heard of before, but in 1991 in Sacramento, uh, there was an electronics store called good guys electronics. Uh, and it was taken hostage, um, by three brothers from Vietnam and their friend. Um, and from what I read, the the film is a pretty accurate representation of, of what went down from the names of all the characters being the same to specific moments uh, in the script happening. Uh, one that Marshall delivers where his, his old man grizzled cop has to deliver a bulletproof vest in his underwear uh, to the hostage takers. Um, Although it was the actual experience was was pretty harrowing, and Marshall said that there's a a clip of it somewhere that survives. We did we did talk about you know the the humor of it and and finding humor in in such a, a tense movie because it is it is a good old fashioned heist film. But also, as I mentioned, you know Marshall has done a lot of these types of films, you know like. Assassin X or the upcoming Blood Angel, uh, which he stars in with Bill Oberst. And I'd actually interviewed Bill Oberst Jr. right before I had gotten on the phone or gotten on Zoom with Marshall. And he's uh, in the beginning of the the chat, you'll, you'll hear him uh, relating the story about him working with Bill on uh, on Blood Angel because um, they, they they do know they do know each other. But he, he's always appeared in, in, in these types of films. But, or, you know, Legacy, where he played Sheriff Ellis. But if you scroll his, on his IMDb, he'll come to his first two credits, um, which were both uncredited, but it was So I Married an Axe Murderer and Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, as well as Fearless. And those are pretty three... Three pretty big films, of course. So I Married an Axe Murderers, Mike Myers. Fearless had uh, Jeff Bridges in it, Isabella Rossellini, directed by Peter Weir. 
And of course, there are few films more iconic than Mrs. Doubtfire. And Marshall talks about those as well, and living in San Francisco and getting to meet Robin and just what a sweet, kind person he was and how in Mrs. Doubtfire, while he was just essentially a, a glorified extra, uh, Robin, because they had known each other previously, introduced him as a co-worker. So I get into all this and more with Marshall Hilton. It's a super dark film about a guy that's stressed out and he's just, he's so stressed out that uh, his doctor tells him he needs to reduce his stress. And one day, me and Bill's characters are having breakfast because we're best friends. Right. And, and this guy spills coffee all over Bill in the restaurant on the way out. <laughs> Bill just goes freaking flip eight shit on the guy. The guy walks out to the door. And he turns around. He flips Bill off. And Bill gets up and goes, hey, and runs out. And as the guy's running across the street, boom, he gets hit by a car. Damn. Bill felt really good for the first time in a long time. Okay. So he, he, he's like, wow, this is really crazy. You know? And he, and then, so what happens is he's, it's kind of, remember that movie falling down with Michael Douglas? Yes. Okay. And he just wanted to get home and he was killing guys. Right. Right. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. It got in his face and stressed him out. So as Bill's going through his day, people start like people talking on cell phones in a theater. Right. 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 He, he finds his, he gets this little blow dart gun with poison and he goes and he freaking kills people and his blood pressure keeps going down because he had a heart attack. He had had a heart attack and his dog told him better. And so it's twisted where it had, it's kind of got this social commentary about all the loud bullshit that you deal with on a daily basis. People honking cars in traffic, you know, all the freaking stressors, you know, and Bill's got to keep his blood pressure down. And he finds out that as he offs douchebags, he starts feeling better about himself. And Armand Asante is a detective on our trail. And so it's it's just this odd freaking. Anyway, we worked, we shot that for a month in Florida about four or five years ago. Oh, nice. So you should check it out. If you like Billy shit, you might like it. Yeah, I, I, I will definitely look at it. Um, speaking of, of working with greats, uh, in your new film, a, a Clear Shot, you do a lot of your work with Mario Van Peebles. Um, the what what was the experience of shooting this film like for you? Um, it was uh, it was good. Uh, it was fun actually. You know, um, uh, it was in December, and most of Hollywood shuts down for December. And I got a call from Jess, who plays Jess Mesa is the actress who plays um, Officer Avuncle. Right. She's the one. Has the, okay, she's a good friend of mine. I worked on a film with her ten years ago. And we kind of liked each other and thought we were, you know, you, know you, you get envy for certain people. Some people you never want to see again. You go, God, I hope I never see that person again in my life. Right, right. But she wasn't one of those. And um, she's funny. So uh, I get this call and she's, hey. I go, what's up? You know, I haven't talked to you. I'm working on this thing. I think you're right on the button for it. I said, oh, okay. And so it was in December. So I read the script. Um, and... There's a whole story about that as well. But uh, it, they were shooting it in December in Mexico, in Baja, when there's nothing to do in Hollywood. So I said, that was a, that was a big plus, right? <laughs> Go down, hang out in an old hotel in Baja, Mexico, and shoot yeah. a movie for the month of December when normally you're just sitting around with, you know, your thumb up your butt, right? Yeah, there's nothing to do. So that was definitely cool, too. Um, uh, working with Mario was good. Um, you know, it's nice. Uh, yeah, we were the we were the old we were the old guard. Everybody in the film was pretty much brand new, and they had never worked on really a film before. So there was this blend of new talent, and then guys that have been around. Um, Mario's also a director, so you know when you're when you're doing scenes with a guy that's an actor and a director, um, you get to work on a different a different way. 
you get to flush out the layers in a different way. You have a different type of brain working at it versus just an actor doing his shit, right? You got a guy that's thinking about the layers and thinking about a lot of just a different stuff. Um, and so we had a lot of conversations that were really actually to uh, kind of make this relationship not that classic 80s Sergeant Murtaugh, you know, where the cops come in, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. that kind of guy. Um, uh, and don't, and not to do that at all, because that's the obvious on the nose choice, right? Um, so we got to talk about those types of things, you know, um, from scene to scene, um, and our own, our own kind of, our own conversations, um, versus one that you would have with, with Nick, the director, he has, he has a you have a conversation with him, but then you have a conversation with another guy that's an actor and director and they were different conversations. Right. So that was, that was, that was good. Mario's a very engaging guy and, um, uh, it was it was pretty cool. You know, I, I know this I know this film was based on a true story. It was uh, a true story that I was unfamiliar with the the, the good guys um, hostage right. of, of of ninety one. Were you familiar with with this tale when you signed on to the film? Did you know anything well, about it? Here's the story I was going to tell you about. I said I'll tell you about it later. Um, <laughs> this is this is how small the world gets from time to time. Um, 15 years ago, 12, 13, 14 years ago, somewhere on social media, I don't know if it was on MySpace or wherever the hell it came from, um, I had watched that video clip of that, uh, the final scene in the movie. If you go on to Google and you type in good guys hostage, you know, 1991, Sacramento, you're gonna get some clips. And one of those clips is the live feed from the news cameras that were shooting and it has the police negotiator audio in it as well because what they had done is when they when my character took that vest out in the movie they gave him the vest in real life they had planted a mic in it and they could hear the room while they were talking to one of the guys on the phone right so they had that audio in this video and i remember watching it and i'm going oh my god i've never seen anything like it you know the class explodes that lady comes running out she's tied with that cord on her and I remember that was like some real true life and death shit. I've never seen anything like that before. It was intense. I watched it about a half a dozen times going, wow, wow. And 15 years, fast forward, I hadn't thought about it once. When they sent me the script, there was this little freaking video link. I clicked on the link, I went, oh my God, I've seen that. I've freaking seen that video before. And then it just, it's just like, whoa, my head exploded. That's how small the universe gets. And I, and I remember calling Jess, I go, Jess, I watched that video years ago. She goes, yeah, I go, yeah, I am familiar with this. Um, then I was really intrigued. Um, uh, and then I sent, I, I sent that clip. I know several guys that are ex-military and some ex-police guys. And one of the guys, um, he got back to me, he said, you know, dude, I'm, I'm familiar with that clip. I go, how? He goes, um, that clip is shown in almost every hostage negotiation, SWAT, sniper training that police across the country watch that video. It's used in all of their educational videos for training on how not to handle a situation. Check that out. I go, what? He goes, yeah, there was a big, there was a big cluster F. And they, and they talk about this a lot because and I'm like you're kidding me he goes no no and then I was like wow that's kind of curious right um and then I got even more and then I read it and then they said it was in Mexico and I'd be working with Mario and I read the character um and I had actually kind of jumped the gun and said yeah I'll do that before I had read the full script <laughs> and then I got to the underwear part and I was like oh shit Oh no, no, right? You're kidding. And I was a little overweight. So I had like 40 days and I just ate broccoli and drank water. And I, went, <laughs> I went to the gym and I rode that freaking bike in the morning and at night and I did the best I could in like 40 days to get some of this living good off of my body, right? It was, it was crazy. I, I don't know why, but 
you know, th this is a heist film, but for whatever reason, that scene of you delivering the vest, that just made me laugh, you know? Um, which, 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 which is odd because the film's not a comedy, right? But did were you thankful were you in Mexico? Did you find any humor in that moment at all? All right, let me throw that back at you. Tell me what's humorous about standing in front of about 40 people behind glass, right, in the store, and about 30 freaking cops with guns, and I'm standing there in blue underwear. Where's the comedy in that? Because because the, because the dichotomy is so bizarre, right? Like you know, you have all these like you know armed you know like armed police officers, and then here you are just almost naked. It was it was just it was nuts. And the thing is, is this is crazy. That guy actually did it. That actually happened. And I saw some pictures of the guy who they actually sent to do it in his underwear. And and that was one of the saving graces of it for me is because. They didn't cast type because that guy had this <laughs> big gut, big right. hairy dude. He was wearing one of those blue Euro Speedo underwear. <laughs> and there was a picture of him. And I went, oh shit, man. Oh no, right? So, um, uh, but they didn't cast a type. Um, so I was good there. I didn't have to try and physically or mentally recreate a real dude. So, um, they said, you know, I, when I called him, I said, dude, do we really have to do the blue underwear? He goes, yeah, you got to do the blue underwear. I said, okay, well, I'm going to go pick the underwear. Because I know if I would have shown up, they would have put me in those little blue Euro things with the little strap up the ass. And I didn't want to deal with that. So, um, yeah, I, uh, um, there were some moments where it was kind of funny. The funniest stuff was the poor guy that was pulling focus on the camera. Right. Because right. I'd stand there. Just in, in all my, right? Nothing except me in blue underwear and this poor soul on the camera rig who was pulling the focus, the DP, you know, and he's pulling, and, and, and he just looks down and I go, come on, dude, you know? And <laughs> he had a full face of that. Um, and uh, so I started kind of just uh, playing with him a lot, you know, when my back was turned and they were doing the close, I'd swim around and I could see him go, oh, come on. You know, he didn't want to have to see that, so. It was funny. You know, it's funny because in, in a way, this this film strikes me as a, as a throwback to sort of those heist films of, 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 of the 60s and 70s, in, in a way, just I think in, in how it's instruct, constructed. Do you, do you like those types of films? Do you like these types of projects? Yeah. Yeah, no, I do. Um, uh, it was, an, it, it was, it was um, you know, most, for me, most of the guys that I end up playing these days as I've gotten older, are crusty sheriffs, rural guys, semi-cowboys, um, kind of salty rural cats, right? Well, Cappy wore a tie, and I was like, yeah. You know, I'm always wearing a shirt with a badge, and I got a, you know, some, a truck, or, you know, what, whatever it is, right? Um, it's a voice, look, whatever. Um, and this guy actually wore a suit and a tie, so I was like, okay, I kind of like that. You know, um, that was cool. As far as the story goes, it, I think it has that feel because there was not a lot of special effects. When it, you know, anything that doesn't have a lot of special effects or a sci-fi component to folks in, in your generation, yeah, they go classic 80s stuff. Well, it is because there was none of that shit back then. So, you know, when you're doing a story kind of like this, um, it does have the old school feel just because it is mostly just people talking and story rather than any type of special effects at all. What I also find interesting, you know, is the, the film takes place in 91, because uh, I, I believe that's when the heist took place. But it seems starkly relevant, especially with everything that's going on in our world. You know, a, you had a black cop, which I thought was, was very poignant. Um, but you also have Gomez pit, you know, pitted against the, the, the regular cops who might be uh, a, a little trigger happy, uh, let, let, let's say. What do you think a film like this and, and the characters that are in it says about, you know, perhaps the, the larger problem of power and, and the military industrial complex? Really? That's a big question, dude. Um, that's a very big question. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I could have a lot to say about that. But uh, <laughs> I've, I've learned that, uh, uh, yeah. Um, I think the way it played out is the way that it actually played out. Those things do exist. There's no question. But they've existed for a very long time. Okay? What we're dealing with isn't anything new. Right. It's been going on for a long, long time. So um, I think it, it, you know, and, and I mean, to parallel it to where we're at now, it's very poignant in a way. Um, uh, it has to do with um, um, immigrant assimilation into society. These kids, they were just fresh off the boat. They had no clue. I mean, they actually thought that they were so enamored with American pop culture that they thought that RoboCop vests, bulletproof vests existed. They wanted to go to Thailand and it, they thought you could fly to Thailand in a helicopter. All right. Um, yeah. So you, this, the dissolution of immigrant assimilation into culture, not being understood, not being able to communicate, which is very relevant, happens a lot. And then you have police departments. And when you deal with ego and you deal with elected officials, okay, which some of them are, um, everybody's bought and sold. Everybody's compromised. Everybody owes something. And and when it comes down to it, there was even that one little snide remark that, that the sheriff said something about, you know, making it something in one of his reports. It would make, you know, this is, it, it, you got guys making decisions based on political future, which is power and money versus the reality of the moment, which is in front of you. And so whenever you're compromising things out, especially elected officials, votes and money, you're not really dealing with the reality of the moment and you compromise people or mass blocks of people in order to satisfy your thirst to continue power. Okay, that's politics. That's what's going on now. It's exactly what's going on now. There's lots of those parallels. You got this block over here, this block over there, and they all want that big block right in the middle, which is the consumer and the taxpayer's cash. That's all they want. That's why they exist. And they're fighting to figure out who's gonna get it. And they're willing to do a lot of things to get it. In the movie, the sheriff wanted to go in there and just blow people out because it made him feel good. It was an ego deal. It was a power deal. Um, uh, and Gomez didn't want to have anything to do with that. Um, my guy, Cappy, was right in the middle, and he, you know, and he had to. Cappy had to make a choice. So, and what me and me and Mario talked about is when does Cappy? Cappy's like team blue for a while, and then to evolve at some point in time, Cappy goes on to team Mario, team Gomez. Right. There's a moment, there's a moment in the film where he decides he has to make a choice, and 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 do the right thing. And, you know, so, yeah, there's a lot of, par there's parallels in this film. Um, I think you can find parallels in a lot of, a lot of movies, but this one seems to be right on the money just because of police brutality, heavy handedness, um, and the politics of all of it. Why do you, I mean, why do, why do you think he ultimately decides to side with, with Gomez? Because on, on the surface, Cappy seems you know, maybe a little more of an old-fashioned cop, but, you know, what, what do you ultimately do you think makes him decide, um, side with, with Gomez? Because in his heart, he's a good person. Not everybody's a dick. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Not, they're not everybody's a dick. We all have it in us on certain levels, I think, at some point in time. But, you know, most, I hate to say this. No, I don't hate to say this. Most cops are are just dudes doing their job and they're trying to do the right thing. And, and I think that, that Cappy figured out that, well, he already, he always knew that that sheriff was a douchebag anyway. He never really liked him. So at some point in time, you have a human instinct has to kick in and you have to do the right thing. And you got to say the right thing. You have to make the right decision. Um, and some people are able to do that. And some people just can't. Um, it's kind of almost like those four cops that were sitting there um, with that gentleman as as Mr. Floyd was 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 killed by that cop. Right, right. Those guys 
they had an opportunity to step up and they didn't they just freaking didn't and they didn't who knows why fear am i gonna am i gonna get fired is this guy gonna be my boss am i you know everybody's got their own reasons why they didn't step up um and that's for them between them and god cappy decided to step up because he saw that the, the sheriff wanted to go in there and do some bad stuff and he empathized with gomez and Gomez can, you know, he, he just did the right thing by, by, by that in that scene in the tent where, where he says, you know, um, he challenges the sheriff, you know, that's, that was Cappy's moment. That's when he went on team Gomez. I, and I just think it's because he had a soul and he wanted to do the right thing. What, what struck me about this film was that, you know, it could be considered an action film, but it's, it's got a lot of dialogue and a lot of very quick paced dialogue compared to maybe uh, a, a typical action film. Um, how, how do you get into that as an actor? You know, it's just, everything's just go, 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 go. Well, you, you have to keep in mind, um, you have to keep in mind this, the sense of urgency, okay? You got 40 people in a store and you got a bunch of kids with guns and they've already shot somebody, okay? And, you know, you can't, yeah, you have to, you know, even though you shoot it out of sequence, you're shooting it different scenes at different times, the ends at the beginning, you're shooting it all out of whack, you know, it's, 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 it's not linear. So, you know, it's the sense of urgency um, and saying, hey, you just got to keep, you got to keep that going. And in certain films like this have a certain rhythm, okay? There's certain pacing in a lot of these types of films, especially with stuff that has urgency, action, things of that nature. There's a pace that you need to get in and it can't be melodramatic and long and these big moments. It's got to be bang, 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 bang. Um, because the situation is urgent and people are going to die and you just have to keep, you have to keep saying to yourself, these people are going to die if we don't freaking get it. We got to get in there. We got to get in there. That's the kind of shit you say to yourself. And then they say action, boom, and then you're in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you have to be cognizant of that. Um, Mario was very cognizant of that. There were times when scenes got a little bit melodramatic, kind of long, most big. He's like, nah, man, we can't do that shit. We can't do that. We got to just, we got to get at it and keep going. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, I mean, that's the pacing. That's that, that, you know? Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned you shot in Mexico uh, in, in, in December. I think you said for, for 40 days. Uh, yeah, something like that. Favorite favorite memory of of being in Mexico during that time. Wow. Um, we were we would uh, we would work and then uh, we would get back to the hotel. We stayed at the Rosarita Beach Hotel and then groups of us, a big group of us, would just walk out onto the main drag and walk down and get four tacos for a buck. <laughs> right. Pastor tacos right off the spit, you know, and, and uh, there was a, there was a place, God, I can't even remember, but I think there was like 20 or 30 of us and there were all these Americans and we're talking gringos and everything, you know, and we're just dominating and it's an open air place. You just walk in, boom, it's right there. It's this little plastic table and everybody has beers and you eat these amazing freaking tacos. And there was a night, there was one night that um, we were all there and, uh, and it's, it, it was those, those, those kind of get togethers were just a lot of fun because the young guys, all the Vietnamese actors and, and all the other, they were young and this was their first trip. Boy, they were just excited. And so there was a lot of, there was really good energy. Um, a lot of good energy in those moments when we were just like chilling, you know, and hanging out after a long day. Um, and, and there, that, that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that a lot. What, what does that do just, you know, just in terms of, I guess, building a, a rapport, you know, keep keeping on friendly terms with your actors? Because there's some actors who, you know, will stay in character for the whole shoot, won't talk to anybody. And then you have a film like this where, you know, there's the mix of young and old, there's, you know, guns pointing at each other. What is the importance of, of a get together like that, j just in terms of be, being able to, to, to be, be friends off the set? You get to understand who people actually are. You know, actors and this, the whole thing with filming a film and actors is really kind of a, a, a you know, it's a super intense 
it's a super intense little moment that lasts for a certain amount of time. And you've got all kinds of creative people that are hyper-creative, left brains, egos, all of it goes on. And, and, it, and, it, and it burns, it's an environment that burns very, very hot because everybody's just going for it, going for it. You know, this is the moment. This is their thing. This is what they dream to do. You know, and when you get those opportunities, everybody's ambition and everybody's energy generally is just just turned on 11, right? <clears throat> and a lot of times, you don't really get to know who people are when you're on a set because people tend to behave differently on sets than they do when they're in real life. It's a very different environment. Mm. Um, and especially when you're young, when you don't really know, there's a lot of, they can be posturing and people kind of putting up a, a version of themselves. You know, the ego gets really involved with a lot of shit. So people can get very sensitive. They can get very butthurt. You know, they can, you know, there's a lot of different things can go on in that place. And none of it's good if it gets out of control. Um, and it leads to kind of a hostile environment. When you get to know people and you get to see what they're like when they got a little buzz on, you know what I mean? And the kind of yeah. stuff that they or whatever, you know, you get an idea of, you know, who they are, you know, the shit comes, you know, all that bullshit that you put out in front of you starts peeling away and you go, oh, that's who you are. <laughs> like hey, the main, the main guy, bad guy in the film with the slick black hair. Yeah. He comes off like, he's a complete asshole in the movie. He's the funniest freaking guy. He's an amazingly, he's got a big smile. He's got great energy. He's an amazing cat. Um, um, and if, you know, if, if you didn't get a chance to go and hang with them socially, it would affect kind of, you know, it, it's just different. You just get to know people a little bit. Now, as far as guys staying in character, I've done films like that where it's such an intense physical character that um, you can't, you know, sets are very social environments. You would have to go into your trailer and you got to close the freaking windows and you got to stay in it. You gotta stay in it and stay in it because it's so gnarly. Um, uh, I could, I could, I could walk out of a trailer and do Cappy in a half a second because there was nothing to it like that. Um, I did a film a couple years ago that just came out recently called Echoes of Fear. It's by David um, and his wife Lo Avenay Bradley, and I and I and that character that I did, I couldn't talk to anybody. I, there's no way you could just be social and, and just. It, it's not that kind of character you have to it's a dark thing it's a psychological thing you cannot be distracted um once you once you're in that place you got to stay in there um and i understand that process i really do i i understand that kind of stuff you you mentioned that you know you you and mario were discussing the, the relationship between gomez and and cappy how much do you think about motivation of a character either when you first read the script and then when you're on set, and, and how much does that change, if at all, between sort of the first read and shooting? Um, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's the dangerous place that we often make when we're first starting and young. Um, uh, discussing what's my character's motivation, right? Um, okay. Uh, motivation changes from moment to moment. People don't walk through life saying, I'm motivated to do this today. And then that lasts the whole day, okay? Um, we, we live moment to moment, you know? I, I, had to, I had to get ready for this interview. I went, oh shit, I gotta get ready. I, I forgot about it, right? You know? And so, you know, I got my computer. Now, my motivation was to get all this shit set up. So <laughs> I talk to you. But I don't have motivation while I'm talking to you. There is no goal past this, okay? And to take it to a scene, if this was a scene, my motivation would depend on whether or not I needed to try and get off of the, this call with you so I could go and feed the cat. Okay, feeding the cat would be my motivation. So I'm just going to do this as fast as I can, say, see you later, boom, and I'm out. Because I got to go feed the cat. Right. So in, in, when you're talking about motivation of characters, you're just really just talking about, you know, okay, I got a scene. What is this guy trying to do? Um, and in a lot of my scenes with Mario, I really didn't have necessarily a motivation. I was just listening and saying, okay, we need to get these guys out. Or a lot of times he was playing with that Rubik's cube. 
we were doing a scene and I'm playing with the cube and I'm trying to figure out how to get yellow to match yellow. That's my motivation. And then the scene happens in between it. And then when that starts going on, then, you know, you start doing this, you're feeding back and forth, you're communicating with an actor. You're not worried about what the motivation is. You know, if you get stuck on motivation stuff, what you end up doing is getting, that's when you're young and you make all your choices at home. When you read the script, you go, okay, I'm going to do it this way, this way, this way, this way, and this way. This is how I'm going to do it. You do the line readings in your head. You know how you're going to say everything, right? Everything's all scripted in your head. And then you get there and it's not the house that you thought it was. It's going to be a garage that could, right? And that actor isn't actually going to be in the scene. They changed it. This guy's going to be in there. And then the actor you're working with says, you know, I don't want to say that line. We're not going to do that line and that line. And if you're all stuck on your motivation choices, you're fucked. It's never going to work. Because now all of a sudden you've got to change that shit that you created in your head in your bedroom for the last two weeks and try and make it work in a scene with real people. So when you talk about the motivation stuff, um, uh, you, you know, you start getting into that, that context of making critical creative choices in a vacuum versus being in the moment where everything changes. Because if you're all stuck on all these choices that you made, when you get to the set, I guarantee you, it ain't gonna be anywhere near that. And the guy that's delivering you the lines in the scene is not going to be saying them the way that it should be according to your script. So you're going to have two actors acting at one another with choices versus speaking together organically. So I don't really do a whole lot of that. My, my stuff is very, very simple. Um, most of the time is, you know, um, there's, a, there's a great book by Dave Mamet, the, the playwright. It's called True and False. I highly suggest if you act or if you know anybody that is that they read that book. Um, his, uh, he calls it um, 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 an actor's action. What is my action and how am I going to do it? Your action in this scene is to sit on the chair and wait for somebody to come into that room. That's your action. And right. when they come in, then the scene starts, right? Um, he said um, an action or a motivation if you're if you're um if your motivation is any more complicated than open the window then it can't be accomplished and an action or a motivation has to be something that can actually be physically accomplished so to come in with motivation and all this backstory all these big brain concepts that you come in with if my motivation is to come in here and talk to you on this interview and to sit this cup down that's my action. And I can accomplish putting the cup down, but I can't accomplish um, making sure that you like me, um, wondering what my parents would think, trying to get approval from my mother and my father, all these big-brained conceptual shit doesn't work. Um, he uses the example of um, Vietnam. The Americans' goal in Vietnam was to win hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people. Can you accomplish that? No, you can't, it's impossible. Uh, the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, the American line had to stay strong so the Germans couldn't get through. They accomplished that goal, that motivation. So I try and, you know, early on when I was doing a lot of the method stuff, I was over here scripting out shit in my head all the time. And you just, you know, the motivation for Cappy, honestly, was just um, figure out a way to get these kids out and deal with these two parties. I had to navigate between heavy-handed cops and, 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 and Mario's ideas and figure out how to navigate through that. And that's all it really was. That's how I, that's how I deal with motivation and stuff. It has to be very specific. You've got to be able to accomplish it or else it's, it's useless information. You've, you, you mentioned that you know, you've, you've played a lot of sort of cops, sheriffs, deputies over the years. What has that taught you about the idea and the nature of power? Um, I don't know if they've necessarily taught me about the nature of power only because every time a guy writes a story, he's writing his idea of the nature of power. It's his point of view. Right. My point of view is to process dialogue and spit it out. And it becomes a vision 
of the writer's idea of the nature of power, right? And they all have different ideas. One guy that's pro-power and pro-military, he's going to be having this, he has his idea. One guy that writes a story and he's way against it, he's going to have his own idea. And you're just going to reflect their thoughts. Um, mine on the nature of power is, is that I've got, as I've gotten older, just generally, is that um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, 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 and power in the hands of, of people that are strictly in it for power, that are ego-driven, money-driven, against all else, it's bad. It's a bad place. Um, uh, power in regards to an officer is a different story. I've been put, pulled over by some officers that are real pricks. And guy's got a badge and a gun. And they're, and they're and their and, and their motivation, the real pricks, they get to control you for a brief moment in your life and make it miserable, write a ticket, add it to the freaking book, and say, have a nice day. I'm just doing my job. And they're assholes about it because they enjoy manipulating you for that brief moment, right? And they right. like to sweat. You know, it, it's it's um powers powers an addictive thing. And if it's not if it's not being handled by people that are mentally capable of the responsibility of power that's when you have problems and there's a lot of people you know there's a lot there's a lot of people running around in that power that, are, that do not have the mental or psychological profile that's that's set up to handle the power they have efficiently and then there's a lot of there's a lot of politicians that are like that tons of them it's almost all of them it's up to some degree cops there's some bad ones. There's some good ones, though, too. I, can you imagine a world without policing? Right. It's. Can you imagine that thought at all? I mean, I, I, we're definitely hearing, hearing about it more now, but I just don't know what that would look like. It would, it would, uh, I'm, I'm telling you. Law enforcement and polices and laws exist for a reason, because man has realized that we're a messed up bunch of people. If everybody was perfect and sound and beautiful and life was tranquil and we were calm, civilized human beings, you would have no courts, you would have no cops, you would have nothing like that. Man has to police man because there's a part of humanity that is just a surviving and oftentimes violent creature. And we've been doing this shit ever since we stood up. We were taking that guy's place over there across the river because they had better food. Right? Right. It, it, it's there's there is a there is a part of our human DNA that is 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 like that, um, and I can't even imagine a world without policing. It would just it would not be a good place. It just wouldn't. Then it would it would actually be the old Wild West where you had to police yourself. Communities would have their own policing. Right. I mean, who are you going to call when someone's busting into your house to come and get you? Which that shit happens a lot. We're really removed from it because it hasn't happened in my life, hasn't happened in your life, but I guarantee it's going to happen probably 5,000 times across this country, if not more. Tomorrow, tonight, right? Right. Who, who would you call? Or would you have to defend yourself? And your kids and your wife and you. Who? I mean, the, the concept of no policing is a very frightening thing to think about. It's, you can intellectually do it, it's easy to intellectually think about these things, right? Big concepts. But we don't live in intellectual big concepts. We live in a world where somebody's going to be breaking into your door. You can't intellectually conceptualize that guy coming into your house. Right. And then, right? It's just And so, you know, there tends to be this big sweeping narrative, especially going on right now, where intellectual constructs about the way life should be versus the kind of the way humanity is. And there's a huge disconnect right now between those two. And that's where all this is going on in between. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's an odd, odd time. There's no doubt. Given you know, where you are in your career and what you've accomplished, what, what is one or two types of roles or films that you still want to do? I want to do an old school on the horseback freaking western i have not yet had a chance to do one of those which 
Um, some people say, dude, I'm surprised you haven't done one of those yet. And I say, well, they're not doing a lot of them. Uh, they're expensive. You got to have horses. You got to have vistas. You know, you got to have big property and old Western towns and all the hats and the guns and the boots and, and the old honky tonk piano playing with the dancing whores, you know what I mean? And all the shit, right? You got to have this old thing. <clears throat> um, I would love, love to do one of those. Um, I've had a couple scripts, um, but, you know, they're a tough sell right now. Um, you know, you, you got you to gotta think of, you know, investors and studios want to make money on movies and the audience, the blockbuster audience that can pay back those movies is that 18 to 25 or whatever that number is, 18 to 30, whatever it is, that pocket. Um, they're so far removed from West it's hard to sell that to them. You know, it's just, they just don't buy it in those types of numbers. Um, I, I was um, submitted a script. Um, there was an old Western uh, series called The Rifleman. Old film, you look it up, it's way old. Uh, and it's as a series and the guy who wrote it sent it to me. And I'm like, dude, just go get your money, please. Just go get your money. I'm in, I am straight freaking in. Um, I have not been able to do one of those, and um, uh, and then uh, a Coen Brothers movie. No, no, oh, for old men. Oh yeah, you know? something like that. Yeah. Oh God, dude, uh, Tommy Lee Jones type of character. Uh, yeah, I, I would. Um, that would that would uh, that would get me off. Needless to say, <laughs> <laughs> I would have. I would be like this the whole time. I'd be like, "Oh, this is going to be bad ass." Yeah. And do it, you know. But do it right and do it well, you know. Um, I would love to do an old western or something like that. Uh, I've never been a big sci-fi guy, um, uh, just because I don't know. It's never something, it's not something that I've gone, oh my God, sci-fi. I have never done anything like that. Um, that, that might be kind of cool, you know. Um, I don't know. Something like that. Well, the, the film that you're in now, uh, which came out June 2nd, I believe, is called A Clear Shot. Um, and it, it's the true story of the 1991 uh, Good Guys electronic store heist in Sacramento. Uh, it's a great film, and uh, you go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Mario, uh, and I, I really loved it. It's a good, old-fashioned, quick-paced heist film, uh, and I encourage all the listeners uh, to go out and see it. Marshall Hilton, thanks so much for your time this afternoon, man. Hey, I am, I'm stoked. I got nothing but time right now. <laughs> as, know, every... as, we, as we all do, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, time is, uh... yeah, I got a lot of that right now. Um, just so you know, um, if you want to do this again, um, go ahead, go watch a clear shot. I mean, um, uh, well, yes, go watch a clear shot. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, and, but if you want to, if you want to check out echoes of fear, okay. I guarantee you, you won't recognize me. Echoes of fear. I will write that down. You will not recognize me. It is one of the craziest. You, you just, it'll, it, and, um, uh, there's another film that's going to be coming out. I'm saying in the next probably four or five, six months, um, I did it back down in Mexico. Okay. And I, I, um, I worked on it with um, Louis Mandalore and Luke Goss. It's called Legacy. It was okay. uh, directed by, um, you got it? Yes, I see it here. Oh, Elliot, yeah. Elliot Baskin, who's in it as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Louis Mandalore. And we shot that down in Mexico. I played the country sheriff in that, you know, back into my wheelhouse um, uh, with Luke and, and uh, uh, Lewis. Uh, Roger Ellis is the director. And that should be popping pretty soon. Um, and then uh, if you want to see anything else that I've done, you, are you fascinated by Bigfoot at all? Yes. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm out, I'm out in British Columbia. So it's, you know, it's, well, then, it's okay, the home of Bigfoot. Okay. Well, um, look up Primal Rage. Okay, okay. Primal Rage is um, a hybrid Bigfoot film, but it's a, basically, it's, um, it's dedicated and inspired, um, uh, oh shoot, I just lost my mind. 
Uh, Arnold, what's the um, uh, what's the with Arnold Schwartz? Um, Primal Fear. It's called Primal Rage. Primal Rage. And it it's it, um, it's a completely different take on Bigfoot. Okay. Um, uh, some people really really like it. Some people eh, whatever you know that's the nature of the game. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, you, you can check those out, and if you want to come back and talk to me about that stuff, I got no problem with it. Uh, there is. I'm just sorry. I'm scrolling through your uh, your IMDb here. There was two quick things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I know one of your your earliest roles um, was in uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, you ah! you were a ah. restaurant you were a restaurant patron. I got to ask you, Robin Williams. What is the Robin Williams experience? Okay. Well, my, my my experience is going to be um, quite different than most people's. Um, when I was studying acting in San Francisco, I was working at a high-end leather fashion store called North Beach Leather. Vogue, LGQ style stuff back in the 80s. Um, and Robin was one of our customers. And he used to come in a lot and he would buy stuff and I would handle him and, and another gal. We were the guys that would take care of him. And he'd come in with his wife and his kids and whatever. That was over the course of a couple of years, probably a dozen times. I never talked to him about acting because I wanted to give him his personal space and it wasn't, you know, everybody was coming up he was really hot back then. So I get a call and, and they're shooting this movie, Mrs. Doubtfire in the East Bay. And I was living in the East Bay at the time. <clears throat> I said, yeah, that'd be cool. So for two weeks, we filmed that very final scene where he was changing, running back and forth during the meeting, right? Coming yeah. in. And so I'm standing there at the front of the restaurant and I see, First day, Robin is walking straight towards us in, the, in Mrs. Doubtfire guard. And as he's walking towards me, he sees me. And he, and he goes, and he cocks his head. And he goes, what are you doing here? And I go, well, I've been work studying acting. He goes, how come you never told me that? I said, well, I, you know, I just didn't feel it was appropriate. He goes, oh my goodness. And this is, well, he's in old lady gear. <laughs> okay? This is his voice. And he goes, and, and, and when, I, when I said, I just didn't want to, you know, uh, I didn't, I don't know exactly how it came out, but I, I just didn't want to intrude on you that way. And he kind of, he kind of went like this and he smiled and he goes, I want to introduce you to the director. And I'm going to, and so he took me and he introduced me to Chris Columbus, the director, Sally Fields and Pierce Brosnan. And then from that moment on, I had a lot of access. He introduced me as a colleague, not as an extra. Wow. Right? Yeah. Different deal. And so during the whole two weeks we were there, there's one great moment um, when he's running across the restaurant to go and try and get that thing out of Pierce's throat when he's choking at dinner. He had to run through these tables and he hurled over a wall. And I was sitting back over. I was standing there because they were moving the tables out because our table was right next to their table. And they were moving tables around. So I'm standing right here. And he comes running and he hurdles the wall and he runs fast and stops right next to me. He goes, how was that one? That was freaking cool. Wow. Just I, like that. And then I never saw him again after that. And then unfortunately he passed. I, I, I heard Pierce uh, tell a story of, of the rest of, of actually the, the restaurant scene as well, where, you know, they, they do the scenes with the kids and then they send the kids away and it's just a close up. And he was just filthy. He had such a, and like the stuff he was saying about Sally Field's character was just like, and, and Pierce is like, you just let him dance and you just kind of follow. No, that's exactly what it was. Um, by the time that they were filming that two weeks at that end scene, they had already been filming for a month, I guess. And um, it was pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> he was saying some really off color shit when he was dressed as Mrs. Doubtfire, but it wasn't, he, Robin was a stream of consciousness. It wrapped in his head and it came right out of his mouth. And his flow never stopped. It was like this. And a lot of stuff was not funny. And a lot of stuff was super funny. But it was, it was, it was basically pure numbers. It never, ever, ever stopped. It was just go and go. And when he was dressed up as, as Mrs. Doubtfire, talking like a man, showing his dress and doing, I mean, it was, um, it was, it was just nonstop, non-freaking-stop. Um, and that was his beauty, and I think that's why he eventually burned out. He gave the world absolutely every cent 
every ounce of his soul. Live performances, stand-up, characters, you name it. I, I just, when he got sick, he just didn't have anything else left in his tank, I don't think. And it was, um, he burned so hot for so long. And he, and when I, my encounter with him at the store and then seeing him on set and then and going through that moment with him and then being able to, you just saw that he, his fire was so hot for so long and uh, he just, he couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And he, his purpose was gone. His purpose was to do what he did. Yeah. And he was an amazing guy. It, and is it also true that you appeared in um, So I Married an Axe Murderer? Same thing. I was up in San Francisco. See, this is what happened. When you're, up, when, when you're away from Hollywood and you're up in the Bay Area, city, San Francisco. Right. Anything that came through the Bay Area that was looking for people, you would get a chance. You would, they would just hire people. But they weren't, they weren't hiring for the good stuff. They were just hiring for bodies. But when you're in acting school and you're doing your stuff, somebody says, hey, man, you know, you hundred bucks. And uh, okay, what are you going to do? I mean, right. I did a independent films, little independent films up there. But, you know, when you get a chance to, you know, throw a couple bucks in your pocket and, and that's, that's why those are on there because those were filmed in San Francisco. And when I left the city, uh, I left the city in 91. Because right. I'm from L.A. originally, L.A. area. When I went up there to school, when I came back in 91, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's why you'll see those credits on there. Yeah. You got to start somewhere, man. Oh, totally. No, I, I hear you. Like I, you know, I, 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 I've done a lot of background work in my day. Like I did background in X-Men, you know, of a few other things that, cause I'm, you know, I'm from a relatively small town. And so basically anything that was shot here, I was a, I was a body, right? Yeah. So. And if you like the guy, go, oh, yeah, okay. Um, I did the same thing in, um, uh, God, it's a movie with Jeff Bridges, directed by Peter Weir. Um, the, and uh, the, uh, Bridges, Peter Weir, not, not the Kingfisher. Um, no. Uh, uh. I can't even remember what it was. Um, uh, Isabel Rosalini. Um, uh, God, what the hell was it? Anyway, the same thing. Oh, Fearless. Fearless. Yes, yes. They actually booked me to be his stand-in in, in pre-production. They were doing okay. all the pre-production at the airport down by South San Francisco, and they were going through all the lighting setups and all the scene setups and the shoots, and, and, and uh, um, I was his stand-in for all of that. And then when they started filming, they had me come in for a few days and just do whatever, whatever. You know, you just do what you do. I'm looking at the cast. That's a great cast. Jeff Bridges, Isabella, Rosie Perez, Tom Hall, John Turturro, Benicio Del Toro. It's a good, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good film. It's about a guy that survives a plane crash and then the nightmares that he has in his head about guilt of surviving versus everybody dying. Then he's having yeah. a hard time. It's, I, it's a, I think I've heard Jeff talk about that in, in interviews before. Yeah. It, it, um, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, you'll, you'll find a few of those on there, but that was a long time ago. Well, the, the, the one that's out now is uh, A Clear Shot. And uh, where can people find it? Is it online, Amazon, or? All the usual suspects. I don't have my list in front of me, but it's all the usual suspects. <laughs> all right, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll find it, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it out after the interview. Marjorie Holton, this has been great. Thanks so much, man. Thank you very much, and, and bring me again. Will do. Stay safe, right. stay healthy out there. You too, sir. Yeah. Ciao. Ciao. And that was my conversation with the actor Marshall Hilton, who stars in the new film A Clear Shot opposite Mary Van Peebles, which is out now. That does it for me today. My guests on Monday will be directors Fisher Stevens and Malcolm Benville, who talk about their new documentary, And We Go Green, which looks at the new Formula E series, which is a, a all-green uh, all-electric version of Formula One, or rather electric competitor to Formula One. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and as I mentioned, I did talk with Bill Oberst Jr., horror icon, and uh, he'll be coming up uh, in about a week, week and a half or so. So be sure to tune in for that. That's all for now. Thanks for tuning in. Stay safe. Stay healthy. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. 
I just like to have a lot of sex. <laughs>